I believe it's just about to start mountain biking, you know, on a global level, you know, it, it, even though, you know, you, you talk to the old boys, you know, that like we've been doing it forever, but, <laughs> you know, it feels like there's a whole new range of people that are going to get involved and, uh, you know, the way the bikes are changing and, and uh, having places that are pure mountain bike destinations you can go to, I think that's just going to ignite things. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 125 features the legend himself, Glenn Jacobs. Glenn is a true pioneer in the world of mountain biking. Originally hailing from Cairns, Australia, his craft has taken him worldwide from designing and laying out 1990s UCI World Cup race venues to building at Blue Derby, Norway, and way too many other places to list. Glenn and his crew at World Trail are truly shaping the best mountain bike destinations on the planet. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right. www.dojustsendit.com will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. If you are looking to get some of the best mountain bike apparel and components, Look no farther than Kettle Mountain and Trail One. For a 20% discount at both brands, use the code TRAILPOD as one word, with a capital T and P, or find the code in the show notes. I've been using a lot of Kettle Mountain apparel all season so far, and it has been incredible. I've also been using various components from Trail One, most notably the Trail One Crockett Carbon Handlebar. Support the brands that support the Trail Effect podcast and purchase some Kettle Mountain apparel and Trail One components. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with tagging Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. Now on to Trail Effect with Glenn Jacobs. we start you're like a legend literally you you are the original don't say that <laughs> <laughs> i'm on the other side of the world and uh everything was sort of evolving it was quite interesting actually the whole mountain bike thing um there were some hot spots around the globe that were all sort of bubbling away separately you know and uh um lucky enough we had it was bubbling away here in australia you know uh we didn't produce a hell of a lot of uh not like the US anyway, geez, world champions. Geez, you kicked that goal all the way back in the day. But yeah, it was all bubbling, you know, it was all bubbling along quite well. Technology, um, and in Europe it was happening and a couple of hot spots around. But anyway, yeah, I could talk forever, but uh, I'll just shoot off on your questions. <laughs> Maybe we should do an intro. So nobody even knows what we're doing right now because this isn't live, but when it goes live, 
there won't be an introduction. So we got to do an introduction. All right, go. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I've got the infamous Glenn Jacobs. Glenn Jacobs was first hired by the UCI, I believe in 1994, roughly. Is that correct? Yep. To be a track builder, track designer, trail builder for the UCI World Cup races. And this was back at a time when mountain biking was really starting to kick off. There are some good, there are some decent media deals, a lot of money in the industry in terms of sponsorship. Grundig was there. Chevy Trucks was there for like the Norba Nationals here in the, uh, in North America. But he's also the founder of World Trail, which has gone on to do a lot of things. The man behind Blue Derby. He is a mountain bike hall of fame inductee in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. He may have produced the first ever free ride videos as well. <laughs> and I was just listening, I was, I was listening to this interview with you and I believe it's your nephew uh, on Gypsy Tales. Yeah. And you had gone into talking about how after you went to a mountain bike race in Australia, you might want to sell your mountain bike because you didn't really want to race on fire roads in two track. <laughs> Let's talk about that pivotal mindset change and that drive home and how you went from, I don't know about these mountain bikes to, we'll just do it our own way. Yeah, well, look, that's exactly what it, we went to the uh, Australian Championships uh, in 1990. So that's a bloody long time ago. We drove from Cairns. And now I live in a place called Cairns, which is far north Queensland, right up in the tropics, sort of like Costa Rica type Hawaii style, you know, white beaches, tropical islands, Great Barrier Reef, all that type of stuff. Australia is damn big. It's bigger than Europe, you know. So, you know, we, we drove uh, something like 3,000 kilometres to this race. And uh, we got there and we were all frothing, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, just step back backwards, I suppose. We'd been riding for about a year. And all we knew was, you know, our riding style was to drop off, you know, really steep cliffs and punch our seats right down low, as low as we can go, and use our, drag one foot off the back of the bike and steer down these steep cliffs and hills uh like using our foot as a rudder and you know the the seat would go into your chest and you know it was all this sort of real steep anyway we went there was a tribe of us that went down there for this uh downhill championship and it was down this dirt road and we looked around we thought hang on this is this is not what we do <laughs> and we didn't even know that that was you know we we thought downhilling was going down a really steep hill anyway uh you know on the drive home it was a long drive home and uh we were just going well look it's not the sport that we thought it was. It's not the activity we thought it was. Uh, and we're trying to work out. One person was working out, well, I could sell it to Barry here down the road. He wants a mountain bike. I could sell mine to my next door neighbor. They were talking about, you know, getting a mountain bike and we'll, we'll get into something else. And it was about, oh, it was only about a, an hour away from home. I said to the guys, I said, you know what? Why don't we just keep doing what we're doing? And uh, we don't have to worry about the rest of Australia or the rest of the world and, and just do what we do. And if it's any good, you know, uh, something will come of it. <laughs> and so we just kept on doing what we're doing and we filmed it. And, uh, you know, and, uh, we, I think by 1992, we had 52 downhills in our area, you know, uh, we'd gone out and cut old logging roads. You know, there was old stinging tracks, old logging roads here and there and mining roads. And, and I, uh, you know, the rainforest takes over the hills fairly quick and the trails fairly quick. So what was built 50 years ago, you could barely notice where they were. So we carved these little, you know, snip branches out here and there and put these trails through. So we were just going down these really steep trails and sort of that's where it sort of started. So that was that story. <laughs> and that reminds me of how mountain biking was here in the U.S. because at that time, the big race was the Kamikaze Downhill at Mammoth, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and that's all changed now. But from what I could tell, 
and and listen again, listen to the, if it, if nobody's listened to the Gypsy Tales interview, we'll link that in the show notes because it's it's incredible because your nephew obviously knows a lot about your story because you know you literally, I mean, yeah, you apparently videotaped his birth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, his father's video camera broke down. And he said, "Quick, go get a camera." No, I did. I grabbed mine out of the car, came back in, and he said, go. I said, hang on. And I didn't think about it till later. Why didn't he just take the camera? <laughs> Why did I go in and film it? <laughs> so that's real. I thought that was a joke. <laughs> wow. You never know. <laughs> you do never know. But let's talk about the importance of trails for you and kind of getting back into your history, because we know that's, you know, that's obviously played a, a pivotal role in your life well before mountain biking even. Yeah, and look, uh, um, I'll just touch touch on that slightly. Uh, it uh, you know uh, go back quite a few generations uh, in, in this part of Australia, and uh, you know uh, we're lucky enough to to grow up with a lot of the um, local um, Aboriginals uh, and the uh, uh, a lot of the tribes, and uh, both myself and my parents and grandparents and and so on. But my grandfather, uh, you know, he was after the First World War, he was given a farm. Out up in the bush to clear and and put dairy cattle in and stuff like that. And he came across while he was clearing, he came across a tribe that was in the rainforest and hadn't really seen anybody else, you know, uh, until he came along. And uh, um, my grandfather, he's a good man, and he he actually kept that whole. He didn't he didn't clear the whole scrub like he was going to. He just kept a, a bit of it there for dairy, whatever he needed for the dairy cattle, and he, he kept the rest for um, you know nature. And it was like a reserve for everybody in that area that uh, they could use, especially that tribe and that family that lived there. And they stayed on for 30 years, you know, which was great. But in that time, my fa- my grandfather and my my uh, mother would go with the, the tribe and they were right up there, about 1,000, 1,200 metres in, in, into, the, into the clouds. They would follow them down a trail all the way down to the coast, which is about a, a day's walk, you know, uh, through these waterfalls and jungles and, you know, uh, escarpments and everything like that. So... Th- uh, you know, they'd go down and, and, and trade shellfish and furs, you know, different things and, and come back and they would, uh, like, my mother, I, I, she only did it twice and she said, geez, a bloody long way. I'm not going to do that too many more times and they'd take the old Thin Lizzy, the, the, uh, their old cars down down to the coast. But, why I'm, you know, why I'm telling you this is uh, there was talk of trails in our family always. You know, um, my grandfather used to talk about how they, how they had their trails, you know, for thousands of years walking the same route. Uh, you know, and it would be contoured uh, where they could, they'd be contoured. And uh, there would be areas where after a certain amount of time, they would swing into a creek uh, where they would get water and lift up again. And there was rest spots and there was certainly, uh, uh, which we call now reveals, were sort of lookouts in really beautiful places. So that was sort of in my culture growing up. And uh, and that's where the trails sort of came from, you know, from day one, one year old, one year old, the stories you'd hear, you know. And then fast forward to mountain biking. Well, you know, I suppose in this, you know, uh, while I was 15, 17, you know, um, the motorcycle industry was really big, you know, and everybody had a motorbike. So we would ride those old logging trails and everything like that. But it was the, that mid-80s when I got my first mountain bike. And uh, off we go. And the trails were the number one thing for me, you know. And look, we get around six metres of rain a year. So if you're going to build anything or even repair or make something so it's you know, a lot of those days with those trails, they're, they're inherited in their heritage trails. You know, they, I mean, you would inherit them. They weren't designed specific mountain bike trails, but they still had to work. And um, if they weren't built right, they were gone within uh, a few weeks because of the rain. So, you know, you had to make sure that, rain, that trails were built correctly, you know, and uh, 
that's where that whole building side of it came from and, and uh, really built my first trail in 1990, I think it was, uh, when I started up a, the local mountain bike club here in, in Cairns. Uh, so it, it, it's been, um, you know, in amongst my, in, in my roots for a long, long time. I'm going to have to apologize to the listener because we might bounce all over the place during this, but that's, that'll be what it is. Yeah. How is it in, this is going to fast forward and rewind. Yeah. How is it interesting that trails, you know, obviously at, at that point in time were a, literally a tool for transportation and now they're, now they're a tool for recreation. Isn't that an interesting dynamic? It is, isn't it? Isn't it bloody amazing? Because, you know, they're, they're not a new thing. That's for sure. You know, the Romans had them, everybody had them. And they were a way of getting, you know, cattle here and there or, you know, going from one place to another. Um, unfortunately, they sort of, you know, with every trials turned to roads and then the vehicles came along. And uh, and uh, and uh, I was, I'm, I'm glad you said something like that because, you know, it, it's, it's uh, we only really have uh, transport corridors. We don't have recreational corridors, you know. So, you know, the, the roads are there for cars and, and, and trucks and, you know, and you very rarely use them for recreation. Well, you don't, you know. Maybe the odd drift car here and there, <laughs> but you know what I mean. They're, they're really only for transport. They're transport corridors, and there was no mind given. There was no thought to recreational corridors, and uh, you know, uh, disused roads and railway lines and everything like that have sort of you know um, come alive a little bit more for trails. But no big long green corridors or, or of natural version forests that you could actually. But there are around the world. There are a few. But yeah. The reason why I brought that up is because probably maybe 10 or 12 years ago, while I was mountain biking, it kind of dawned on me that, you know, our initial trails were exactly how you explained them, a, a point of transportation. And that was what they're used for then. But now, like a modern recreational trail, trailer, we're going to stick to mountain bikes on this. You know, it really, yeah. I think, if done right, should tell a story to the, to the user. You know what I mean? It should really paint a picture of an experience. Definitely. Definitely. You know, if you if uh, you know in the industry that we're in, you know, you're designing a trail not just for the feel but the look. You know, uh, you you've got to go on a journey, and uh, you know, some trails. Uh, if you're in some really beautiful terrain, you should have a reveal every five minutes. You know, uh, you know, not, not exactly every five, but uh, you know, you should have a reveal and a, a spot that you can have a swim. And it's it's about the 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 ride. You know, not so much the shortcut or the quickest you can get one point to another. You know. But yeah, look, uh, they're 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 beautiful things, and um, you know, there's all different styles of trails. You know, adventure, bloody airflows, gravity, downhill. You know, uh, you know, wilderness. All these different types of trails that you have to build as a in the industry. But you try and make them close to blended earth as possible. You know, try and create them as 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 uh, uh, to suit suit the terrain that you're in as much as possible. For sure. Let's back up to what maybe captured your attention from the motorbike to the bicycle, aside from the fact that you didn't want to ride on fire roads. Like what really, what kept you riding the bike instead of just staying on a motorcycle? Oh, look, that's, uh, it, it, you know, uh, you know, back in the, you know, when, when you first started riding, everybody started riding. There's something about mountain biking that, that really grabs your attention and you can't put your finger on it, but really what it is, it's massaging your mind when you're riding and you're looking at that, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that nice little strip of dirt. A soil uh, ahead of you, and um, I used to come back from a ride and thinking, you know, you know, you've got your day to day problems of work and or whatever you're doing, and you know, the bank manager's ringing you and saying, ah, oh, you know, you should be doing this and that, and 
not doing this and that, you know, all these worry stresses of life. But as soon as you threw your leg over your bike and off you went, they all went away. Everything went away. And it wasn't until years later that you can actually pinpoint and go, you know what? If you were thinking of anything else, bang, you'd be on the ground. <laughs> you know, you you got to look, you got to be looking at what you're riding on and you're engaged all the time. You know, you're 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 very inclusive, you know, in, in the terrain and you it, it's mesmerizing, you know, and uh, you're going along and looking at every single thing you're doing. And uh, you know, if, it's a, if it's a smooth footpath, well, that's different. You can ride with your hands off the bars. But if you're on a really nice trail, you're really engaged with it and your mind is working. And, uh, and, and that's you're not thinking about another thing apart from how beautiful life is. And uh, that resonated with me straight away. I'm going, Jesus is a beautiful thing, you know, and uh, um, off we went from there. Let's fast forward a little bit to 1994 and how you like kind of tell the story of how you got in contact with the UCI or the UCI got got in contact with you to be that first really that track designer for the UCI. Timeline's a little bit different. There it was 1992. We we had a a a, um, a state championship here and we had uh, an event just about 100 meters from where I'm living uh, in the forest and. Uh, Unbeknown to us, uh, the the head of the Australian Cycling Mountain Bike Federation came and rode the race, and a lot of people from uh, the bigger cities around Australia came because, like, Kansas is a well known place as a tourism destination, you know. And they said, "Well, why don't we piggy? Why don't we piggyback a, a holiday, <laughs> you know, off a, a, on a state championship?" And, and so everybody came here, and they loved it, and they had a good time. And uh, this, uh, I didn't know the guy at the time, but he uh, he was a bloke called Martin Whiteley. He was uh, head of the mountain bike division. He came over to me. He said, "You know what?" He said. These trails, because we thought everything you built was should be hand cut. You know, you you build it, the trail. And he said, oh, you know, he could imagine Juliana Furtado and uh, John Tomac and, you know, Ned over and riding these trails in the rainforest. And, you know, unbeknown to us, they'd been thinking about getting a World Cup to Australia. Now, Australia is good, different, like our winter is your summer and your summer is our winter. Yeah, so the North, you know, North America and, uh, and uh, Canada, I mean, North America and, and Europe, uh, you know, um, you know the, the the World Cup series are held in the summer, so you couldn't really hold anything down the southern part of Australia because it was winter. But up in uh, tropical North Queensland, even though it's winter, it's bloody summer. <laughs> you know, it's bloody it, it's tropical, so it's hot. Uh, he said, "Yeah, we we uh, we really want to get a World Cup to Australia." So I said, "Yeah, well, we're in. We'll we'll help out, whatever." And uh, they said, "Well, you've got to go and see something." So they, the next year, they flew us to the World Championships in France and in '93. And then we started building the trail uh, in 94. Now, it was all volunteers in 94. I didn't actually get a contract with the UCI until 95 and, and then full term in 97. So the, the first World Cup came along in, in 94. And, uh, yeah, uh, a bloke called Cadal Evans, uh, he came and raced as a, as a junior and he got fifth. And uh, uh, there was the highest recorded, you know, no mountain biker in Australia had ever got any higher than that anywhere, you know. So I remember this Martin White, the character, rang the UCI and said, you know, we we like that straight away and said, oh, you know, usually it's first, second, and third on the podium. Um, can we extend it to five, you know, to get the Australian on? And uh, that's where it came from. And then, you know, from there on in, uh, yeah, so we had a, a cross-country World Cup. Uh, Bart Brenchens came and he won and, uh, and uh, you know, Susan Dimitri. And uh, it was great to meet those characters and uh, and then came back in 95. And then we had a World Championships in, 90, in, in 96. And it was downhill and uh, cross country, and it was because of that event, the media and the UC, uh, the media and uh, the riders and everything said to the UCI, "You should employ this fella full time." Yeah, you, know, you should employ him, and uh, they gave me a, a contract after that, and I moved to Switzerland. 
and uh, started uh, helping out designing, you know, the four cross and, uh, you know, cross country and downhill. Yeah. Let's stay on 96 because that was a pivotal, pivotal year in more ways than one. Because yeah. that was also the year that, if, I, if my history is correct, that Sean Palmer almost won. You betcha. Yes, he did. Yeah. And, and very, how he changed the, the industry. Oh, yeah. Look, I, yeah, I've been banging on about Sean for years. He's bloody fantastic. What he did for the industry. Just be, he didn't do anything special apart from be him being Sean. You know, what a great guy. You know, he was just, just an amazing character. And look, we, we, you, you look at the data of that, of that downhill and, uh, you know, people go, oh, well, because it had a long, it had about a 250 metre straight at the finish line coming out of the mountain, you know, and it was nearly flat. You could blatantly say it was flat. It was like 3% or 4% uh, or, you know, grade, but it was, it was flat. And they said, oh, well, he lost it to Nicolas Boulier on that, on that finish line, of course, you know. It was like, no, no, he was actually quicker than Nicholas on that, on that straight. Uh, he's a very powerful rider, Sean. And uh, if you ask him, he goes, yeah, I know where I lost it. He said, in a berm, up a bit further, came in a bit too tight, slag, you know, lag coming out, 0.3 of a second, you know. And, uh, yeah, anyway, it was great. Eric Carter, Basta Beaver, you know, there was some, you know, and Caroline Chasson, there was some great um, placings there, you know, and uh, Sean really, uh, that really changed the industry, I, you know, from from that day forward with, with Sean being involved. Yeah, for sure. And he wasn't even, I mean, he was pretty much, if I remember it, he was pretty much putting the bill on his own at that point. He didn't have a specialized deal yet. He was riding an Intense. Intense was really a new brand at that point and for all practical purposes, you know, so a lot of stuff really changed. Yeah, and just him, you know, a Slayer t-shirt and just jeans, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, a, a, a real fun-loving attitude, you know, and, uh, you know, nothing, nothing bad about anything else, but, you know, people were wearing a lot of Lycra. And that sort of wasn't mountain biking in a way, you know, that, that side of mountain biking. Because the mountain biking really, if we go back to that 1990 World, uh, Australian Championship we went to, it was most of those people there that was probably, you know, 95% of that was Lycra. A lot of people came from road cycling into mountain biking, but our lot came from motocross or BMX or, you know, came from that era. And that's Sean Palmer came from snowboarding, you know, and motorbikes and stuff like that. So that sort of side of it resonated with us, you know, because uh, it, it was – not road cycling, mountain biking. It was, at you know, adventure mountain biking. Yeah. So you really got involved then in 1997 with UCI. At that point, Correct. what did you see? Like, how did you see tracks changing? Because bikes were changing quite a bit. I mean, bikes were a crapshoot with what you had for designs. So designing tracks must have been pretty interesting considering what people were on. Yeah, it was different. Not a lot of manufactured tracks there, apart from the four cross wheel jewel. Um, cross country was, uh, you know, taping it out and the downhill was nearly the same. Most of the, the most of the tracks were, um, at ski resorts and, uh, they were just blazed down a hill, uh, without any, you know, like trails now a little bit more groomed and, uh, um, tracks, I mean, and, um, yeah, look, uh, you couldn't have anything massive because what do you have? What? Three inches of suspension at, um, in 97. Uh, and I mean, the intense had a lot more, you know, but, uh, yeah, you, uh, um, uh, but mind you, they're still going that far as fast as they, <laughs> they're sort of going now, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the tracks did evolve over time. Certainly, uh, you know, that the nineties was sort of, were to blame a little bit. And, uh, I think we're all to blame. Uh, but the nineties sort of was where that, that whole thing about, Mountain biking is an extreme sport because you know it was so new and so young. 
Uh, everybody tried to validate and to say this is our sport, you know. So you know, Pepsi Max Extremists. There was a show in Australia, Pepsi Max Extremists, and the ads in magazines always showed the most extreme side of the sport, and rightfully so because that's all there was really at the time. To you know, um, uh, but you know, fast forward to now, uh, there are, there's still land managers and everything thinking that that's what mountain biking is, and even some people go, oh, I'd love to get into mountain biking, but I couldn't go down. Down that down the hills fast. You go well. That's actually 0.03 percent of the market now. You know, but yeah, it, it, it changed slowly over a period of time. Yeah, and uh, um, the jumps got bigger. I remember when I, I think it was Sierra Nevada in Spain. We put a ten meter jump in. Everybody's like, "Ooh, yeah!" Brian Lopes and and uh, Cullinan and Carter and all those guys are going, "Wow, that's 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 decent." You know, that's good. <laughs> but now you can see it. You know, with a lot of these freestyle. Um, Tracks now a lot different to that uh, than that now. Is there any tracks specifically, and I want to say in North America that stick out to you in terms of being unique or kind of being pivotal? I know there's one to me, but I don't know if you're involved with it at all. Which would have been Breckenridge, and like it would have, I think that was an Arbor National. It would have been Breckenridge. I want to say '98, roughly. It seemed like that was things were starting to change then. Yeah, it was around then that then things were changing. That '98, '99, a lot of things were happening. Yeah, look, there was a few tracks. I loved a lot of European tracks, you know, that was really uh, raw. And, uh, yeah, I didn't get the Brackenridge one. Yeah, Mont Saint-Anne was always, a you know, an amazing track. Had a lot of rock in it and a lot of, you know, natural stuff, which is really good. Yeah, there's probably too many to mention, you know. There's uh, a lot of really cool things that were happening. You know, Big Bear was sort of always dry and blown out, uh, but it sort of reacted the same way as if it was super wet on another trail, you know. the In a race run, that uh, uh, actually, Sean Palmer won that one uh, in, in 98 or 99, I think it was, uh, because over towards the end of the, the the race, the track started getting slower and slower because, uh, you know, the times were getting you know, slower and slower They uh, because the track was getting more and more blown out. And the soil is different. It's just like having a, you know, when the rain comes across in a race run, Pause down. Everybody can't meet their qualifying times because it's too wet and slippery. It also works on the other side too when it gets blown out and dry. Yeah, look, uh, there's a heap of heap of things. Yeah, let's fast forward to around I think 2001. Yeah, and money started going away in the bubble burst with with the industry because that was also very pivotal for you. Yeah, look, um, it, you know, Grundig. Uh, moved on before that, and uh, that was a major sponsor, and a couple others were coming in and out. And uh, yeah, look, uh, somebody explained to me many years ago about the uh, marketing spike. I don't know the curve. I don't know if you've ever heard that. What it is is, you know, you get something brand new. It's, uh, let's say skateboarding when it first came out. You know, skateboard was a lot smaller and a bit kooky, and you know, um, and you know, but anything new can only go up if it's any if it's worth anything. That you know, it starts rising sales, popularity, everything starts going up. And uh, and there's always a ceiling, and uh, with mountain biking, you know, and skateboarding and a few other sports, you know, goes up and you hit the ceiling, and bang, it just drops out. It drops down with skateboarding. It, it, it I remember when it uh, hit the bottom, and uh, then the the deck started changing and the componentry started changing, and it came back differently. With mountain biking, it was around that 2001, 2002. It hit. Um, because it was on the rise, look, oh, the teams were making real good money, <laughs> you know. I mean, I mean, sorry, the riders were making really good money. There were big teams. I remember the GT team had, oh, I don't know how many people they had at it, you know, like 
Specialized had a huge team and really good riders and you know, Trek and it just kept on going on and on and on and on. And then bang, it hit. So riders were were that were getting, you know, um, you know, like I don't even know what they were getting. They were getting, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, you know, um, started getting near nothing. And my, myself, I was part of that that crew with along with media and a few other things with the UCI that they had to start cutting corners. And uh, you know, I, I lost my job and quite a few others uh, around that same time. And then uh, you know, the people that moved into the media and my my position, and everything were people that were like, you know, I, I think that could actually just wanted to, you know, fly around the country and help, you know, uh, help at a, you know, so. There was no sponsors. There was no nothing, and it, it was it was it was really bad. But the beautiful thing about it, there's always something good comes out of it. Mountain biking was always about competition in the '90s. Kept on going on and on about competition. There wasn't anything about recreation. But from 2003 onwards, recreation, it, recreational trails started boiling up. And yeah, I think it was 2003. Uh, I personally got my first ever job from an Australian government department. Saying we want a trail and we want to spend money, and so that that was unheard of. Apart from a racetrack like the Olympics or something like that, this was actually a you know spending money on a trail, a mountain bike trail for the people to go and use. And uh, um, that was a good thing about that. That sort of uh, you know when it hit the ceiling. That's exactly where I wanted you to go with that, and and the fact that you know there's there's a silver lining in that bubble bursting, and the fact that you were able to start World Trail. You know, you probably scrambled for a bit to figure out what was next, but you're able to start World Trail and you're able to start working for the Australian government building trail. You know, right. what, um, what were you thinking around that time in terms of like, cause, cause when you build a track, you're building it for the elite, right? Oh, racing. Yeah. 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 That's what I mean. You're, you're building it for the elite, you know? And, and so you're not really appealing to the masses. So how is that shift in like, Going from I'm going to build something for the best of the best to I'm going to build something for the majority to enjoy. Uh, look, that is a great question because we still see it. Um, we call them ego trials. So you're building it for yourself, or you build it. Yeah, you know, like I don't know if you heard this term. But many years, like people would say, like, oh, if you can't ride it, you shouldn't be riding mountain bikes. You know, we, we build something. It's like, well, that's the dumbest term I've ever heard. You know, that's just silly. It's not inclusive. It's not. You know, and does, that doesn't mean you dumb anything down just have to build something for everybody you know um we changed really quick because we knew what our market was and you just don't want to alienate people you know the worst thing is how many times you know, have you heard a, a girl will take a boyfriend riding a boyfriend will take a girlfriend riding and they they you know they've broken their wrist within the first you know you know half an hour and they leave and they'll never ride again you know um i'll never ride mountain bikes again you know so that you know you know you'd see that happening i'm not riding that that's you know i end up people hurting themselves and this and that you know so we learned early, earlier on and uh, the whole ego thing is is real, you know. People just want to build something that's really going to challenge them and make them look good. The trail builder, they make them look really good. Look, I built that, and that just challenged such and such who has got a podcast or has got you know is races for this team, and they loved my track, but nobody else can ride it. So you extrapolate, yeah, get all that information and pull it apart and go, well, actually, somebody's paying you money to build trails, you know, and. Uh, Unless you're going to be, like you said, the best of the best, it's got to be for everybody, you know, and that's where the A, B and C lines came in and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, changed pretty quick and we started building for what we needed to build, you know, and the, the, like I was involved with the, the rating system. I think it was in Switzerland and, uh, you know, you mentioned in the email. I think it was in 1994, 95, we're at an IMBA conference. Well, it could have been 97. I, I look, I went somewhere in there and uh, our job was to come up with the rating system for IMBA. 
you know, what is it, green, blue, red, black, double black, you know, and some countries change it. Well, we don't have a red in Australia, but uh, Europe does, and I don't know what you guys have, you know, green, white, green, blue, black, and double black diamonds. Um, what do you have, red? Interesting you say that, because I was literally just looking at Trail Forks last week, and when I was in, when I left Reno for that International Trail Summit, I went to Grand Junction, Colorado to do some mountain biking for vacation. Yeah. And on Trail Forks, at least in the U.S., it goes double black. And then I, what I, I, I interpret it as red being even further, but I've heard okay. it said both ways, like the way you just said it. But the way I looked at it on the map was that double black is difficult. Red, you probably are going to walk if you're, unless you're one of the best. Yeah, right. Well, in Europe, it's different. It's green is like, you know, your mom and dad and you can, you know, put your pram, but we have white. Um, We've and, adopted uh, white now also, from what I've been told from a, a good friend of mine who's the lead planner designer for IMBA today. Yeah. And white, white is good because white is basically like, let's get some people riding. It's not mountain bike. You know, it's not mountain. You can gravel grind. You can ride a, probably a road bike. And it's usually wide and has got too many re- steep reverse grades or anything. And green is like, uh, and, and green is a funny one. Green is, green is really, really funny because it's a beginner trail, right? A green is beginner. But there are, there are many types of beginners skill-wise, but there are two types of beginners. There's a beginner who's never ridden a mountain bike before and is going to go for a mountain bike ride and has never done anything else at all. So they're getting on a mountain bike and going, oh, this is, this is difficult. Or you're going to get somebody, like I mentioned before, you may have a snowboarder or a, or a motocrosser or a motocross rider, or you could have a, uh, a you know, surfer or somebody that knows what's up, but never ridden a mountain bike before, but they'll get on a green trail and go, oh, this is easy, you know. So that's a beginner too. You know, they're getting on a bike for the first time, but because of what they do. So that's a funny one. But yeah, it goes white, green, blue, and in Europe it goes red and then black. And sometimes double black, you know, um, and sometimes a skull at the end, you know. So, <laughs> you know, but anyway, look, uh, uh, so we were part of that conference back then, and our job was to come up with something like that. And we had just adopted the ski ski run uh, philosophy because that was quite easy and uh, uh, went from there. And, um, yeah, so when we started building trails, um, you know, like in government agencies, uh, you know, they, they they didn't really know what they wanted either, you know. they That was just like these mountain bikers in this area are looking for trails and we're going to fund it. What are you going to build? You know, again, um, just lucky enough, we were chosen to build that first trail in Australia and we kept it, designed it and, and, and built it for the masses, you know. Again, by no means do we dumb anything down. Um, and I'll chat to you further about that with a, an obstacle we, uh, feature we built. But anyway, uh, so that was exciting times because that's when World Trail started. You know, my, myself uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I got this document in the mail and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading it was like, a, you know, hey, can you build this, this and that? And I'm reading it. Oh, yeah, this and that. And then it went to a couple of pages of like blah, 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 blah about all the specifics about government things. And I was just standing beside a friend of mine who were filming a television show, a mountain bike television show with. And I showed him and he goes, oh, yeah, that's easy. I went to, I went to university for that. That's, uh, you know, business management and stuff like that. And I said, well, look, how about I do the building and you do all the paperwork? And we'll go halves. He goes, yeah. And that's Dylan Jeffries, my business partner. And we've been together since, you know, and we've been, uh, and that's who World Trail is, you know. So we've been doing that. And, uh, you know, because as you know, all that background stuff is uh, a lot of paperwork, a lot of meetings, a lot of everything. Uh, the design part is the, the fun part. Yeah, for sure. Let's stick on, let's stick on the trail rating system because that's something that continues to be kind of a, I guess, a hot topic within the industry and within mountain biking. 
And yeah. with World Trail, you're literally designing and building trail all over the world. Yeah. What is your opinion of how the rating system should be explained? Like if, if I'm going to go ride, we're going to use two iconic trail systems. If I'm going to go ride Blue Derby, should a green yeah. trail at Blue Derby also be like a green trail, say, in Norway? And so you have yeah. that experience because right now we don't really, I know in the United States, green somewhere might be blue somewhere else and blue somewhere might be black somewhere else. It's quite troubling. And uh, we saw it in, in Europe. You know, I see it like I went to ride a blue trail in, in uh, somewhere in, in Austria. Oh, I couldn't ride it. And I, I can, you know, I'm, I'm not the best rider in the world, but I, I can bloody ride. And it wasn't a blue, you know, and a green. Look, you get on a green. And even worse, if it teases you in and it's a green, like let's go on that green. And then it turns into a black or a double black. And, you know, then we have a thing called no force risk. You know, I can go on forever about the, the protocol we've got. And, um, you yeah, know, no force risk. You don't want to. You don't want to force anybody into taking a risk on that level of trail. You know, uh, a green trail, you shouldn't force anybody into something that they shouldn't be able to ride. And, that, yeah, look, um, that standard should be global. And, uh, I, you know, from a trail builder's perspective, just our, our um, specifications, everything, we stick really tight to that. And uh, if you ride a green trail with us, you're riding a green trail. If you're riding a blue, you're... I'm assuming you've experienced what I just explained, and even recently, I'm I'm guessing, like, because it still kind of happens. I don't know if it's happening in Europe and where you've been riding, but it still happens, like, you know, across the United States. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it's it, it it's all over the place, and it's not right. And I believe, uh, I think you had Thomas on the the show the other day. Yeah, he that show just came out this morning, but I I recorded yeah. it a couple weeks ago. But yeah, yeah. Look, um, uh, he he's very passionate about that. You know, getting you know like one trail in. Poland should be the same as the trail in Norway and should be the same as, and look, it's also, you know, it's really funny. It's, 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 um, you know, there's some places have got into mountain biking late. Some people got into mountain biking early. That shouldn't matter that whatever skill, you know, like if you're a green, you're a green and then, and, and uh, you're going to progress, you know, you're going to progress. And that's why a green trail should always have these little funky things beside on the side of the trail, but they shouldn't be on the trajectory. You know, um, uh, on the main project, uh, trajectory, you know, so it helps progressive expansion. You know, but yeah, look right across the board, across the world, it should be a specification, and that's it for sure. And we're going to get into your three points because I have that written down here, so we don't need oh, to right. expose that quite yet. But let's talk about you know building a trail in terms of having having maybe that green or true green or blue trail experience. But like yeah. you were talking earlier, building those alternate features in, you know, to the right or to the left, so giving. You know, say I could go ride, you know, this trail with my girlfriend. She keeps her wheels on the ground the whole time. She's a pretty new rider. But then I yep. could say hit a couple jumps or a couple drops that no one is forced to hit. And it's not, and you actually have to look for it. Yeah, exactly. Look, um, again, I could probably talk for hours on this one. There, there is a certain type of trail that we've been building for a few years. It's called an airflow. And you can ride the whole trail with your tires on the ground. And you can ride the whole trail. You know, um, wherever there's a feature, an obstacle, you're in the air and big air. But that's just two parts of it, of the spectrum. Then there's about three or four in between, you know. And the beautiful thing about that is that the only place you get a chance to progress or get better is usually with somebody barking at you, especially what you just said, a boyfriend, girlfriend thing. You know, you may be like barking at your girlfriend, like, oh, you, you can ride that. You can do that. Oh, I'm not, I don't want to do, you know, that's really big. You know, or, or something like that. But if there's something that's just slightly more than you can get your, you know, wheels off the ground this much or that much, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more at your own time. 
you know, in your own time, when you're comfortable, not with somebody on the side of the trail barking at you, or you can do that, but, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a good coach, you know, you're skilling somebody up. But those type of features and obstacles um, you and that type of trail, they're a little bit more to build, but I tell you what, they're the most popular and they don't have big sharp lips on them. Uh, we, ban, we ban sharp lips, you know, um, really frustrates me when I see a, a trail, it could be a blue or a black trail, and all it is is just one big sharp lip. And then you only, I don't know, it means only X amount of people can ride it. Um, if you have, and even if one one set back and one's a bit bigger, you know, that means only two types of people can ride it. You want everybody to ride it, you know? Yeah, certainly you don't want beginner trails on a double black diamond huge jump trail. Yeah, that, but an airflow, you can get a green airflow trail, a blue airflow trail, a black airflow trail, you know? Still, the protocol is number one. You can ride the whole thing with your tires on the ground or so far in the air and so far forward. It's crazy. So, you know, um, that's the future. And it, it doesn't have to be a super manufactured it could be a trail. It could be a blended earth trail, which we call, you know, you, you just blend the earth differently. You're not doing anything. But you're looking at opportunities. That give Like uh, a lot of terrain has got beautiful rocks and, you know, um, soil and everything. You can build anything you want, you know, and shape anything in, into the terrain. But yeah, look that that's going forward in a lot of way because that's that's the future of the sport, the activity, you know, getting people to are comfortable. Yeah, you know, they're, they're comfortable with riding. They're uh, and you're not again, you're not dumbing anything down. In fact, you're making things bigger than you were going to build because if you just have one sharp lip and that's the size, well, let's say you want something bigger. Yeah, you may lift and pull a bit more getting up, but no, no, build it bloody bigger. But if you've got four other different ways into it, and again, the, the obstacle is called a quark knuckle. And the quark knuckle is uh, what we've been building for a few years, and that's what we uh, build our, our whole trial protocol on. So what point in your uh, trail building career did that light bulb moment go off where you decided that this was kind of the future of making it for everybody? Was it pretty early on when you when you transitioned into World Trail, or was there a place where this kind of like, was we should really go this direction here, and this is why it makes sense? Yeah, look, uh, both really. Um, with the UCI from a race perspective, um, if you had a B line, the B line must be a lot longer than the A line. So the A line, if you're going to take risk, you know, risk versus, versus reward, you know, and great. Um, and uh, and some people will take that risk when you're in a race and it doesn't work out well for them. Or you just go, no, I can run this quite smoothly, but the the, the B line shouldn't be quicker. We all know that it shouldn't be quicker than the A line, you know. Yeah, so it was, it's in that area, but also in being inclusive. You just don't want people walking their bike out. Like, worst thing is, say you go and ride a blue trail and you spit out the other end and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a bloody rubbish rider. I I didn't enjoy that. I, oh, I'm no good. No, you don't want anybody to think that. You know, you go, shit, I was challenged, um, but I got through that and I'm going to hit that other one. You know, you're right, always riding with a group of friends and stuff like that, and not everybody's the same skill level, but you all want to sort of, you don't want to be clambering down a bloody across a couple of tombstones and, you know, down a big gully while your friends are jumping and then you get, and everybody's just sitting there waiting for you. You know, you still have those big jumps, but you also want to arrive nearly at the same time <laughs> at the end of the trail altogether. We'll stick with your trail philosophy and we'll go into those three points now. Cause it's at some point we're, we are going to transition into the places that you've built, but since we're on this topic, let's talk about those three points, which I have written down and you're going to ex expand on safety, drainage, and predictability. Am I correct with that? Yep, they're the they're the three pillars, and uh, by no means is that that's a basic fundamentals of, of, of traveling, you know, and uh, that's what we found anyway. And we've we pulled everything apart, and they're the three, 
you know, safety, again, you build what, you know, the good point you made before, you know, about, you know, if you're going to ride a green trail or a blue trail, it's got to be a, let's say a blue trail, you know, it's got to be a blue trail in every sense and some, but it shouldn't be a black unless it's off the trajectory line, you know, and uh, because that's progressive expansion, you know, and and that's, uh, you know, everybody does that. Well, hopefully everybody does that in trail building, but um, it keeps it keeps the trail exciting and it keeps you, te- you know, teases you and stuff like that, but it's not on trajectory. It's not a forced risk. You know, it's not, uh, if you're riding a blue line, you're riding a blue line. You're not riding blue, then black, then double black, and then green. And then, blue. you know, you're on the trajectory line, it's blue all the way. But if you choose, or if you even recognize over there, just that kick near that log and the rock, dude, there's a, there's a bloody 10 meter gap there, you know, it's purposely put in. But anyway, yeah, the, uh, oh, sorry, mate. What was, what was the question? <laughs> 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 Your three points. We'll we'll, get, we'll start oh, with safety. Yeah, I think sorry, the, I think yeah, you just yeah. actually explained safety. Let's go into drainage because that's, yeah, that's obviously safety. something yeah. that you're ex- excellent at because of where you grew up and in the point mm. of keeping a trail for its longevity. Yeah, and and, and drainage is uh, only when you get rain, you know. But it also probably works with blowing out stuff. But drain drainage is critical. You know, intercepted drains, the type of drains that could get built. You know, uh, many. You know, reverse graze is probably the greatest invention for. For a trail, because it not only feels good, but it works well too. But you know, reverse grades that just dip down and lift up, and they stay, they maintain a sort of a flatness at the bottom. Well, they'll always blow out. They'll be no good. It's got to be like a delta. You know, at the high point, at the highest point of the reverse grade, each end, yeah, each high point, it's like a mountain range. Whatever falls here, it's going to go to the sea. Falls on this, the highest point there, it'll come in, go inland. You know, so so the thing is, um, you know. as the water comes down, it doesn't doesn't roll down the trail and get to the lowest point and then shed out the drain. It has to curve on an angle down. So as you when you build a reverse as you build a, the lower point, it gradually magnifies deeper, 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 deeper off to your left. So it's self flushing. So it's self um, you know, maintenance really, you know, less maintenance for 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 the uh, the people who are working on the teams, you know. But um, yeah, all the different types of drainage, you know, you you know, I think that's just standard. Corrugated, you have, you know, you have corrugated iron roofs, eh? You know, what's that? In like roofs that just sort of, oh, yes. buckle. yeah, yeah, yeah. You just turn them on the side and pull them out. That's exactly what a trail should be just multiple drains going, going. And the more rain, you know, again, six, seven meters of rain here a year, um, there's a place up, up the road that gets 12 meters of rain, you know, on top of a mountain. And, and you, if you're going to build a trail, it's got to work, you know, it's got to, you got to get that water off that trail, you know. And hardening and all, all the different stuff. Anyway, drainage is the second one. That's critical. And the third one is predictability. Um, some people would like to say, oh, you know, Jesus trail flows well. But it's got a, you know, predictability is not a groomed, smooth trail. Predictability could be, you know, it, it could uh, lend itself to the jankiest, steepest, dartiest downhill track. There is still, still the wheels have to go where they have to go, no matter what. Um, you know, you, you see a, a jet liner coming in to land at an airport. It doesn't go janky and like this. It's got an arc and it's doing a thousand kilometers an hour or 500 kilometers. An hour, you know what I mean? There is, you know, there's this, no matter what you're doing, how steep or how fast you're going, your wheels are going to go in a trajectory aligned and that's predictability. And, you know, when a trail builder gets it right, people go, geez, that flows well. Geez, that's great. And it's really good, you know? When they get it wrong, yeah, sometimes you pick it up and maybe you don't, you know. Worst thing is you come along and then all of a sudden the trail tightens up really tight and then you come out of the corner and you go, now oh, I've had to click down a few gears and go and stuff like that. 
You've probably seen that clip on YouTube where one rider's following another rider and just shoots off the edge of yes. the car. Like, yes. <laughs> extreme predictability. But look, the easiest way to say it is like, you know, putting a few berms together and you come out of one berm, you end up in the middle of the next, you know, or you have a dirt jump where you, you know, you hit the lip and you land, you flat land, or you hit the lip and you, you case, you know, that's predictability. You just got to get it right. Well, we spent a lot of time with that kinetic energy and, um, uh, you know, um, the forces and, momentum and stuff like that and there's so much in it depending on the grade of the hill and the soil and everything but once you nail that right and we've got books on predictability and it, it's so interesting you know and it's basically flow but again we're not talking about a groove flow trial we're talking about everything it just has to work right and and it's an art you know uh, getting uh you know getting that that right speed but anyway those three drainage safety and predictability they're just the basic fundamentals uh, it's not making a trouble to build a certain type of thing. You know, it's basically, you know, um, you know, you get those right, you can build anything you want. And the best best way I explain that is look at the car industry. You know, a car's got four wheels and it's got a steering wheel, you know, and it's got an engine and it's got some seats. But how many different types of cars are there? The basic fundamentals are there. You know, if you're going to build a car, it's going to have four wheels, it's going to have an engine, it's going to have a seat, it's going to have a roof, but a shelter, you know, and uh, – Every car manufacturer, you know, designs cars so differently. The fundamentals are there. You know, the fundamentals are, are there. So it's the same as uh, with trail building. You know, you you have the fundamentals, the specifics of building a trail. You you uh, master those three items. You can build anything you want. Doesn't matter. And that that opens up creativity. As long as you've got drainage right, safety right, and predictability right. Let's go into creativity and Blue Derby. How that project came to be and kind of how you were able to shape that into what what it is today. Yeah, well, Blue Derby was a, you know, we, we didn't expect it to be, we didn't expect the client to be as um, receptive. You know, like everybody's trying to save a buck here and there when they're building, you know, a, a, a trail destination. That formula we have, have for Derby, we had that 14 years ago. Oh, no, sorry, 18 years ago. And nobody until Derby ticked the six boxes you've got to tick. And everybody been been uh, ticking four to five boxes, uh, saving the money here, saving money there, this and that. Well, they were the first ones that said, "Yeah, okay, let's tick every one of these boxes." And when you do, you can't go wrong, you know. And uh, so it was really good seeing the terrain. We were we went in there years ago, like well, ten years ago, to have a look at the area. And they uh, they they uh, northeast Tasmania had a few areas that they had uh, the tourism board and the the mountain bikers and the, the council and stuff like that. They had identified a few places, and we went and had a look at them. Yeah, they were fine, but most of them weren't anywhere near a town, which is the worst thing if you're going to have a destination. What's the point? It's like having a ski hill, like a ski resort with a town 10 kilometres away from the bottom of the ski run, you know. And, uh, you know, it surprises me that people will build destinations that are so far away you have to drive to them, you know, as in like daily drive. <laughs> yeah, know? like you, you get there uh, and you have to drive to ride. Oh, that's that, that that's that that's not a destination. I mean, the ski resort, the ski industry went through it eighty years ago, so they know what's up, you know. And I'm not saying these things should be in ski resorts at all. I'm just saying that in in their game, they they had to deal with the same thing eighty years ago. So fast forward to us right now is a uh, you know um, a, a, a mountain bike destination, you know, uh, or a trail town has to have these six boxes. And uh, when we when we had a look at these other other places that they showed us in. Tasmania, we drove through this little town called Derby and they were thinking about it, but they said, oh, do you think it'll work? 
oh my God, you know, the mountains come through the town. There's a lake there. There's waterfalls there. There's a river goes through the town. And look, it had had a disaster in 1927. The dam up the, the valley burst and took out half the town and nothing was going on. But this sweet old town, I just needed the key turned back on, you know, and uh, mountain biking did it. The houses were around 50 to fifty to $100,000. They hadn't sold a place there for about 20 years. Fast forward now, they're up around the $900,000. And there's all this new, I think they built 45 new houses. I mean, accommodation places and restaurants and everything in that area now, you know. Um, it's just amazing what's happened there. There was low, It was low socioeconomic. They hadn't employed anybody there forever. Now there's about 200 people employed in the town, you know. And it's uh, for Australia's, you know, be, you know, a lot of people just go there to, to ride now. And uh, accommodation um, is, you know, those six boxes you've got to tick. And do you want me to tell you those six now? I, I'm wait- I know what one of them is, and it's my- it might be the last of them. So we'll wait. But I think and well, they're critical. I think actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop what what one I think what what I think one is, and that is the design to drop a circus on top because that one caught my attention, and that's yeah, probably the yeah. one that most people miss. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, uh, and look, that, that that's the one that polishes your brand. You know, it's it's like you know Red Bull, you know Red Bull Air Race or something coming to your town. You know, that's going to be plastered on every bloody screen you look at. You know, for forever. What's that going to do for your town? It's going to be great. You know, so yeah, that's the, that's not not necessarily the last one, but that's the six box. You got it six. They're all very important. But yeah, look, uh, right right back in the early days when you design a, a network, you got to you know, and I'm really lucky because of my UCI days, Olympics, and all that stuff. When I look at an area, because I'd go and evaluate towns for the UCI in different countries, you know, and you go, can we put three outside broadcast trucks here? Where can we put 20,000 people? Where are they going to park? Where are they going to eat? Where's the main runs that are coming down into town? Is there communication? Have they got good community? Where's the emergency points? You know, all these things. Can we close the main street down and make a big piazza and put all our tents up and all the, you know, circus tents and everything, basically, you know? Where are the athletes going to train? Where are they going to come in and out? And where are the spectators? Where can we shut off the town? But the town is still breathing and people will, there's a beeline going, like a, um, you know, a, a service road going around the town. So people can still go past the town and they don't actually have to go, shut, to go through the town when you shut down the main street. So, and then you can bring along a World Cup or a World Championship if you've got all these other things, of course. But the, when, you can, when you do that, you can bring the circus to town. Very important. And also when you design the trails, you know, they may never – Bring a major event, you know, it could be a signature event, it could be a World Cup, it could be EWS, it could be Crankworks, it could be anything like that. You design everything. You think about all of those things. If they don't do it, well, that's fine. Nobody's going to know that, but think about them first. It's not hard to do, you know. Um, it's like when you're designing a whole trail network, the first thing you've got to tick off is the, the finish of a downhill. You don't want that three kilometres away, you know. You want that to come back into town, and then you can put the cross-country and every other trail you like anywhere from the middle of town. But wherever that that downhill finishes is where the trailhead has to be, you know, and you go from there. But look, uh, that's one point. The the, the main point, uh, well, number one is connectivity, connectivity to an airport. And again, great background with the UCI because it's an hour and a half from an international, uh, an hour and a half from an airport. And that I think that was an Olympic mode where you have athletes traveling all over the world. They land in the, the, the country they're going to, and they have to get another flight. You don't want it to be, um, and when you land where you are, you don't want to be like five hours away from the airport. An hour and a half is that sort of sweet spot. That's what the UCI, I don't know about now, but that's what they used to say. And it works well for us because that's a weekend. It's viable for a weekender if you live in a big town and it's only an hour and a half away or of an afternoon if you 
you know, finish work early or something like that. But an hour and a half is not far. But then there's the other thing. Connectivity means where are the trails compared to your accommodation? Where are your trails compared to the pub? Where are your trails compared to your restaurants? Your accommodation, you should get out of bed, stand on the balcony and look at trails, you know, wave to everybody that's going by, you know. You should sit in a cafe and, you know, people are riding past, you know, and and all that type. That connectivity is very real. Connectivity to bike shops, everything, it's basically bang. Again, you know, uh, it, it's uh, it's like a ski village, but it is a trail town. It's a trail village. Number two is um, natural features. Something, you know, have you if you've got something beautiful there, you know, show it off, you know. We go looking for lakes, escarpments, waterfalls, you know, uh, the type of uh, type of uh, you know uh, ecotones. Does the forest change that much? You have some savanna over here, then you have these this you know high sort of altitude bloody forests or cloud forests, and do you have pockets of rainforest or do you have pockets of fir trees and ferns. So you're again when you're riding on a bike, you know you're, those things are massaging your eyes as you're riding. You got these changes all the time and these little trigger points. Oh yeah, that trail I really like was full of ferns, or that one's got big views. So natural beauty really goes a long way because it's the Instagram world, you know, like you take a photo, like as mountain bikers, no matter where where you, you know, you go somewhere and, uh, you know, you take a photo and then you post it and everybody else sees that post. And as a mountain biker, you look at it and go, you can feel yourself riding there because you're looking at it. You know, maybe a surfer would do the same or a rock climber, but you can feel yourself. You have the emotional attachment to the environment and your bike and, uh, Instagram's free or any any social, you know, you take a photo of something really beautiful and you're in it, that's really important, you know. So anyway, that, that natural natural features is extremely important. The third one is quality trails. That's really, 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 really important, you know. The trails have to be quality. Yes, they'll cost a bit more money, but you need repeat visitation for a destination. You don't want people to go there once and go, yeah, all right. You know, you want people to go frothing and go, oh, I want to go back there and go back four or five times a year or whatever, you know. And and again, those trails, quality trails, something for everybody. What we were talking about before, you know, beginners right up to pro riders. A pro rider go there and have the time of their life. You know, a family member, you know, or families can go there. Beginners can go there. And then the intermediate. So the range, you, you know, our data over the years, we, we call them the 70 percenters, which is us. You know, you break down the 100%. Basically, if you break it in down to three, you have 15% green, 15% black with double black, 70% blue, mid-range, middle, intermediate. They're the people that that travel in big, big, big groups, you know, and travel halfway across the world. Well, if there was an amazing surf break somewhere in Indonesia, you know, the amount of, well, there are, you know, <laughs> the, yeah, the amount of surfers that pilgrimage, they go there, they go again and again, you know. And also, you've got to have something. It's not just a cross country, not just gravity. It's something for everybody, skill level, but all these different types of trails too. I always look at this, you know, big shopping mall. You go into a shopping center, and there may be what 150 stores or 80 stores in a in a shopping center. What do you call them? Mall, strip mall. I mean, shopping malls, correct? Yeah. So you imagine if every shop or every you know um, you know. Every shop and, you know, 100 stores in a shop was a, a shoe store. You know, you go, well, what's the point of this? You know, I'm not going to go to that shopping centre. I'm not going to go to that mall because they're all, you know, there's something for everyone. That's why those places work for, for people that like shopping because there's something for and they work for the masses. So you've got to have something for everybody. You may love, love gravity. You may love wilderness. You like gravel grinding. You may everything for everybody and lots of it, not just one trail. 
lot a plethora of them, you know. And uh, start with a coffee and finish with a smile. You know, worst thing in the world of trail network, you have to grind the last 20 minutes, you're grinding up some dirty, snotty hill to get back to your accommodation here. Uh, you know, uh, and I often talk about this, you know, how many, I think we've all done this. We've gone out with that one friend that says, oh, look, we're going on a ride. It's great. It's really good. And you're climbing, they're dragging you over these hills and you're, and you're hating that person. You're going to sell your bike. I'm never going to do this again. This person, I'll never talk to this person again. And you'll ride for two or three hours and it's probably not that good. The last 10, 15 minutes, you, you, you know, tearing down this hill, a beautiful trail in the finish, you're high-fiving and everything like that. You've completely forgotten about what was what had just gone before, you know. So the last bit coming into town is extremely important, you know, the last hour, I mean, half an hour, 10 minutes. And if you can roll into a pub, that's even better. If you can roll in, you know, so start with a coffee and finish with a smile or finish with a beer. Look, the next two, I'll quickly go through them, you know, growth. What can the town do? Can it grow? Can you, like Derby's got five bike shops in it. And the thing is only one main street. There's so many people go there and they're all doing really well. Rentals. Shuttle, there's no chairlifts there. I think there's 12 or 13 shuttle companies there. And one shuttle company's got 12 buses, you know, and the next one's got 10, the next one's got six, you know, and they're all employing people. You know, they're all, you know, and they're all offering different services, you know, different trails, wilderness ones, outback ones, shuttles, just this one or shuttling over there and stuff like that. And nobody said that was going to happen. It happened. People believed in the dream. They saw what was happening there. There's a floating, authentic Scandinavian floating sauna. You should Google it. It's a bloody amazing. In this lake, there was an abandoned asset. It used to be an open-cut mine. And when the dam burst in 1927 and filled up, you know, took out half the town and killed a dozen people and, and also filled up that thing. And nobody would go there. So, oh, that's that old lake. You know, we put a suspension bridge across the river to it. And just go, wow, this is beautiful. You know, and it's a beautiful lake that, uh, you know, ducks and fish and, you know, anyway. And this this guy's gone, oh, I'll put a floating sauna on there. And it's he's booked out for the next six months. You know, every, you know, it, it's just really busy. And there's a lot of things like that. These opportunities, beautiful restaurants. The town has, it's just gone crazy. So you look, you, you have something there that that is is working really good, you know, and it's, we call it progressive expansion. People see something that you may not see. Uh, and they'll come in along for the ride and the vision. They will build their own things. You know, they will start creating, you know, award-winning um, architectural, you know, designs. You know, and award-winning designs in the in the houses and the and the you know, restaurants and the accommodations and stuff. They all bike-friendly. Everything. Um, the fifth one is, oh, that, sorry, that's pubs and, and cafes. You've got to have something for everybody. You know, the next one, sorry, is, is uh, progressive expansion. Where if you if you build a network, uh, say you build a network on an island. And it was really popular. You wouldn't be able to go any further, you know. If you had an eighty k a trail, then you couldn't go any further, you know. So you have to have room. If it's really popular, can we put another ten kilometers here? Can we put another fifteen kilometers there, and stuff like that? And just back on that quality trail. Sorry, what I mentioned before. Uh, I know I'm probably talking too much, but very important. Um, every, every network you must have eighty five kilometers or more, nothing less, because nobody will get in a plane and travel half the country, or you know, to go. To, 10 kilometers of trail or 20 kilometers. That's a regional product that, that'll work for the and service the trail network, uh, service the mountain bikers around the closer towns. But if you expect people to travel a long way, you've got to have a lot of products. You've got to have 85 kilometers. That's five nights or four nights, you know, and there's people staying there, sleeping, eating, and stuff like that. We call it the tipping point. And then, uh, you know, Derby started off with 85. Now it's about 137. 
you know, and it's still growing. And most of the networks we have uh, on our books and we built. Well, you'd know this better than me, but I came, I kind of coined this back in August when I had Simon French on. And that is, I think Tasmania is the most mountain bikingest island on the planet. Mm, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. When you look at Blue Derby and you look yeah. at everything else outside of Blue Derby, because there's a lot, there's more than just bike parks in Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we don't call them parks. We don't call them bike parks. Bike parks. Trail centers. Yeah. Or trail towns. Yeah. I like trail, I like trail town a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Trail towns work well. You know, um, bike parks conjure up for Australians anyway, is something you put under a freeway and it just jumps, you know, or a bike park is, is like an enclosed area. That's just specific one. It's trail town, you know, and, and, uh, but yeah, look, Derby was the one that did it because everybody will get, we'll get three emails a week, um, saying we want the next Derby, you know, and, and that's what did it for Tasmania. Mind, mind you, my second job ever was in Tasmania back in uh, about 10, 20 years ago. And that with Simon was a volunteer working at the local club. And we came in and designed a, a sort of a, a series of trails and everything. And um, that's all coming along quite good after all these years, you know? So um, yeah, there's a, uh, yeah, it, they work, you know, they, they really do work and they're, they're amazing things. And, uh, and Tasmania has just exploded. You know, it's, it's really hard we highly recommend you don't do one day here, one day there, one day there in a car and go around. People do that. But, you know, just go to one or two places and, you know, go for two weeks and ride the hell out of it because you're, gonna, you're still not going to ride them all, hey, those two, two destinations or trail, uh, trail towns, you know, but there's so many of them, you know. Um, be it, some are small, but uh, it is a beautiful it, – it's a beautiful – I nearly said country. It's a beautiful state, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Australians are really funny because Australia is so big. Australia is the mainland is so big, and then you have Tasmania, which is an island just off it. And I, I, look, I've I've done it myself. And you know, you, you go to Tasmania, you go, oh, back home in Australia, we do this. No, it's actually part of Australia, you know. But it's a, it's just that sense of the mainland is so big, you know. And uh, people think they have to get a passport to go there, but it is beautiful. Um, highly recommend it uh, as a holiday derby is. Uh, and, and we have approached three trail centres, uh, three trail towns. Um, there's uh, Derby. We've we've approached the approached it in a way that Northeast Tasmania has three very large trail centres, trail towns. And so you can go to that area, and they're all about an hour and a half away from the airport, or an hour or forty minutes, you know, and uh, have have the time of your life. What is it about Australia that mountain biking has really taken off? For that country, what is it? Do you think it's the government, you know, helping fund it and the tourism, or the just the people there? Like, what I mean, what is it about Australia that really has gone well with mountain biking? Yeah, look, it's a funny one. That's a, that's a good question. Um, look, twenty years ago, I got I got fined for riding a mountain bike somewhere, you know, and there wasn't anything legal, you know. It was all like, oh, we'll turn a blind eye. We got Joey Klein out, and well, Joey, a group of people got Joey Klein out. And, uh, you know, talk to a few people here and there. And I think that was the start of it. We certainly campaigned for quite a few years. But the first, one of the first jobs we got, and I'll, I'll tell you the way we approached it, is that we quoted it up and it came to a certain figure. And uh, it was sort of like, you know what? It was sort of volunteer rates. You know, it was like, oh, we could build a kilometre for $1,000, you know? And it's like, well, we could make do a better job. You know, we could actually spend some time with this and actually not just do a quick 
cut and shut and build a trail. Why don't we treat it like a profession, you know, a real profession? And and we sort of uh, aligned ourselves up with the the consultants, you know, the the engineers of the world and stuff like that. And we found straight away that um, councils would actually listen to you then, you know, because you 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 approached it not just as a volunteer, as a club member, you, you as a business, you know, and they would listen to you. And uh, Australia, like outdoor adventure, is very important to Australians. You know, we live in the we call it you know the, the great outdoors, beaches and the outback and everything like that. So mountain biking falls into there in into that bracket where you could actually get on a bike and go somewhere and do stuff. So the government started going, well, be good if we can put some trails here and there. There's so many people in Australia campaigning to to um you know to to get trails built, you know, just like anywhere else in the world. But Australia, Australian government has listened. Well, each government in each state, they've all listened. There are some states in Australia that don't like mountain bikes, you know, and that's called uh, New South Wales. Unfortunately, is the is um, one that hasn't really progressed very far. They're starting to get on board, but Tasmania jumped on board 10 years ago. Same as Queensland, Victoria, Western Australia. They've all come on and just, you know, gone, yeah, let's let's embrace this thing. I believe, look, it's uh, probably the healthiest trail industry in the world. And I'm not saying that because I'm from here. You know, um, we've got about 400 and something, you know, been involved with 400 and something projects in 23 countries, you know. And and Australia is by far the most understanding. The government is so much so understanding of what what should happen, you know. And uh, and the funding is out there. Like you know, we're talking each each one of these trail networks, you know, like a trail town, anywhere between between ten and forty million dollars. They're coming across, you know, the desk everywhere, you know. And, and I think there's fifty eight trail builders in Australia, some big companies and and, and smaller ones, you know. And that's. That's not a lot compared to what you got, but we've only got 26 million people, you know? So it's really healthy, you know, and it's exciting to see. And uh, look, we still have our issues with, like, some land managers don't exactly know what a trail is, you know, um, right from the start. And even worse at the finish, you know, you build something and somebody that's not so good, maybe build trails that aren't that good. Um, a, a land manager may come along and go, well, it's a bit of dirt. The mount- There's a dirt track. The mountain bike bikers will love that and sign it off. You know, so we need a lot more information, uh, a lot more skilled people in that um, in that area, I believe, you know. But it's really healthy. It's exciting. It's fun. Like we've got to the point now is like, oh, but sorry, we've got to the um, area now that, that like say somebody may come to us and say, look, we've got $30 million here. We've got the money already and we want to build a trail town. We want to build something here. What do you think? And they've gone and done the research. They've done everything, got the money. And sometimes you'll get one that you know, look, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, you 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 can't build the best surf break in the middle of the Arizona desert. You know, you can't. You know, you 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 know, horses for courses. You know, you just you you have to give them the bad news. Spend your money somewhere else because it's not going to work. But most of the people do their their research. Most of the government departments do their research, and they get the money. You know, it's a funny an in house one we often talk about. It's really hard to get a hundred thousand dollars funding for a trail, but it's really easy to get twenty million, because there's about probably five thousand people after the hundred thousand dollars. You know, basketball courts or drains or a car park or toilet block or something like that in an area. There's only probably two or three people are going for a major project. You know, and uh, we find that they get up and get rolling a lot quicker than the smaller projects. 100%. And that is that is a perfect segue into what I was going to talk to you about with Norway. 
because yeah. I think Norway, I may have pulled this from the soil searching video and maybe I read into it, but it seemed like Norway didn't really know what they had until you got there. Yeah. Look, it's, it's, uh, it's a funny beast, you know, it's, you know, uh, I can only give you examples from stories. You know, I remember when I was about 10 years old, I had an auntie and uncle come and stay at my place, uh, my parents' place, you know, and they stood out on the balcony and they said, you know what I like about Cairns? And Cairns is just surrounded by mountains and jungle peaks, you know, everything. They said, what we really love about this place is the mountains. And I stood there and looked, I said, what mountains? <laughs> you know, I grew up there, but you don't, when you're from a place, you don't really, you know, you don't, you get so used to it. You know, I think we're all to blame there, you know. The, you're really too familiar with your surroundings. And Norway was the same, you know. Uh, they have got an absolutely beautiful country. We were asked to go and have a look there, and uh, the area they were looking at isn't the big escarpments you see up north of Norway, those big fjords and, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, big rock cliffs and, you know, I mean, huge, you know. Uh, this place was just mountains, you know. But geez, I tell you what, they're perfect. <laughs> they're perfect. They've got their their own escarpments. So they they've got these big boulder rolls. They've got everything you could everything you've seen in Squamish. You know, is there? You know, and uh, and uh, the terrain is just the views, the valleys. The there's more waterfalls and lakes per square kilometer anywhere else in the world. You know, and uh, yeah, we fell in love with it straight away, and we um, yeah said, you look, you've got something really good here. And uh, and mountain bikers will, because when you go to Europe, you go to, you know, you go to Germany, you go to Switzerland, France, Italy, something like that, but never really venture up to Norway or Sweden. You know, it's it's only an hour further in a flight, but everybody just hangs out in the center center of Europe. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's different. There's no, I've never seen terrain like it, you know, apart from very similar to a lot of, a lot of Canada up there in the north, uh, west of Canada, you know, around. You know, Bellingham, well, that's the US, but, you know, up, up to Whistler and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Squamish in those areas, it looks a lot like that. Well, Thomas Larsenschmidt basically said that what you're doing in Norway is like Blue Derby on steroids. Is that is that a correct statement? Perfect statement. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, you know, the, they, they're still yet, they're, they're building, you know, a town, they're building, they're gradually you know, selling and, and putting in the infrastructure, selling house blocks and the stuff like that. But the end plan, the end plan is uh, is uh, it's going to be like a derby. The good thing about it's, you know, it's a ski resort, but it's also the first place in Norway that it's summer first. They're, 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 yeah, there's going to be, I think, three large chairlifts there and, you know, the lakes and restaurants and cafes and buildings and, you know, every all the infrastructure you need. Uh, and it's going to work in winter. But the planning is from a summer perspective. And that's that's really honourable, I think. You know that they, they they're really looking at that first, and uh, you know in the design side of things, working in very close with the the winter people. You know the ski runs and the chairlifts, and then, is that going there? Well, look, we we'd like this as a lookout. Well, the chairlift may go on this next knob instead, and you know instead of saying, oh, you're trying to retrofit something to a existing ski resort. You know, so um, yeah, it's uh, it's derby. It's got everything there. When you get there, it's an hour and a half uh, from the airport. Um, you know, uh, you're going to, when you wake up out of your bed, you look out to the mountains and your trails and off you go, you know, and, uh, big, big boulder rides. And, um, yeah, I've already talked to, you know, the UCI about, I'll say EWS, but at EDC, you know, but, uh, EWS events later on. And, and certainly you could put 
do crank works there and uh, World Cups and World Championships and things like that, you know. Uh, it's got everything. How interesting is it to be able, because like, you know, my history with, with mountain biking and going to resorts is basically going to, you know, a ski hill that then, like you said, was retrofitted into mountain biking. And, you know, you go to some of these resorts or ski, ski areas and you're just basically looking at tree islands to figure out where you want to put the, the trails. So to be able to reverse that, how awesome is that? It is. It's amazing. It really is, you know, and it gives you goosebumps because you, you've got this clear, you know, this, this open slate, you know, this, you know, clear canvas, you know, fresh canvas and, and off you go. And, uh, you know, um, working together, you know, we're very, very close with, uh, those, this, you know, the, um, ski run designers and stuff like that. It, it's just fantastic. And, you know, another thing too is, uh, you know, funny, I, I'm glad you said that about also retrofitting what we said about retrofitting, um, you know, trials to a ski resort. One of the things that really sort of rubbed me up the wrong way about, you know, 25 years ago is you go, you went to a trail, ride trails at a ski resort. And, uh, from one side, really great because the infrastructure's there. You've got a mountain. You can catch a chairlift up and down and everything like that. And I'm talking a long time ago. Um, but, you know, you'd walk into your accommodation, you open up the door and look around, there's all these posters everywhere. They're all, you know, ski posters, you know, and they weren't mountain bike ones. It was sort of like retrofitting our lifestyle to to that. So that's why trail towns to me, and a, a trail town could be a ski resort, but it's a trail town, you know, and you go there and uh, everything is set up just like uh, when you walk into a chalet, you put your skis there and put, well, you walk into a chalet, it's all, the mats are there. If you come in with muddy bikes and your bikes are hung up there and there's your bike washed and here's your drying, you know, you, you know, it's a really lovely, you know, and uh, where we're going and it's exciting. Like I've been in, you know, involved with the industry for a long, long time now. And to see it, I believe it's just about to start mountain biking, you know, on a global level, you know, it, it, even though, you know, you, you talk to the old boys, you know, that like we've been doing it forever, but <laughs> you know, it feels like there's a whole new range of people that are going to get involved and uh you know the way the bikes are changing and and uh having places that are pure mountain bike destinations you can go to i think that's just going to ignite things well look at the trajectory of the tra i said that wrong the trajectory of like alpine ski resorts i mean they've been around for 85 some of them been around upwards of 100 years you know yeah. and mountain biking's i mean for all practical purposes i'm gonna say 40 years old maybe 45 and when did skiing really take off? It wasn't in the first 45 years. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. Staying on the topic of, of trail towns, do you know Mark Hayes? He owns Highland Bike Park in New Hampshire. I've heard of, but I, no, I don't know him. No, okay. I've heard. So one of the things that I really like about anytime you hear Mark Hayes speak, especially to a new crowd, and especially to a new crowd of, we'll say, other resort owners, is he points out, 100% of the time that Highland is 100% bike. And mm. I love it when he says that because he doesn't, he's not, he's very pointed in not trying to be all things to everybody. He's trying to only focus on biking, whether it's summer or winter, it's just bikes. Huh. That's wonderful. It is. He doesn't have to Easy. move anything for, for winter operations. Like at Whistler, he doesn't have to tear anything down. You know, it's, he can just focus on what he's doing and he's been very successful at it. And having a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. That's look, it's a future. It's a, a, a great future and uh, keeps everybody, keeps everybody inspired too. You know, like another a really cool thing is that, um, you know, uh, 
another example, sorry. There's a trail over here we rode 35 years ago. And it's, a, it's a downhill track, right? And it's about, um, it's about, uh, we held one of our first ever rides. We, we rode it and it was a, it was like eight minutes to get down, right? We've got all the score sheets there from our first race. And, uh, let's say just fast forward 30 years, you're still riding down there, but you're actually going three minutes quicker on the same trail. You're 30 years older, but you're going like, you know, 25% quicker. Why is that? Well, the bikes are changing. You know, technology. And, uh, I suppose skiing was the same. Everything is, uh, you know, it's, uh, bikes are technology heavy and they'll just keep on getting better and better. And, uh, um, and you're getting it, you know, safer rides and, and and stuff like that. So that's why I believe it's just about to start because you know you, people are throwing over the, the legs over a bike for the first time, and it really really works for them, be it e-bike or not. You know, it really just works for them. You know, and uh, instead of having something that's really awkward and ugly and one inch of suspension and stuff like that, you know, you just said it, and before you said it, I was going to say it. Let's open the e-bike can of worms. Yeah, yeah. What are your, you know, I mean, for whatever reason, I don't know why. I don't know why e-bikes seem to get, and maybe it's just a United States thing because it's new and I know they've been around in Europe and, and other parts of the world longer than the US, but let's talk about e-bikes and how they really are contributing to a positive part of the future of the sport or activity. Yeah, look, they're, they're huge and they're great. They're not going away, you know. They're... uh the best people I, you know, like, you know, people say, oh, well, they're good for people that are old or injured or something like that. No, have you seen a pro rider on one? My God, you know, the things they can do with them, you know. Uh, you know, um, look, they're, they're great. Um, in Australia, they're not a problem. There was probably just as big a, you know, um, sort of uh, static about them as 29ers, you know. And there, there's a simple argument. You remember the 29 thing about, what, 15 years or whatever it was, you know, and it's like, the same, the same end result is like, well, you don't have to ride it. You know, it's fine. And it, that, that's where it finishes. There's no other, there's nothing else in there. Apart if it's got a throttle, well, that's not a mountain bike. You know, it's not a, it's not an e-bike. It's a, it's an electric dirt bike. You know, it could look like a mountain bike, but if it's got a throttle, it's not a mountain bike. It's, it's pedal assist, you pedal. We, we got, no, I don't know, 10 years ago, we got a, I think a specialized turbo or, or I don't know what it was. We went out and tested them. We thought, let's see what this is about, being trail builders. And, you know, there was three major things. I think there was a weight, speed, and uh, there was something else. So, look, it was insignificant. I can't, I can't really think what it was, you know. Oh, well, the thing is the weight, the weight thing. You, you know, you might be uh, – I'll talk about kilos here. You might be 70 kilos and I may be 100. So are you banned from riding an e-bike? You know, <laughs> like because, you know, it's, it's heavy and you're light, you know, um, uh, like – it doesn't really matter, you know. Um, uh, you know, do they damage trails? You know, no, they didn't. They didn't damage trails. If a trail wasn't built well and you put a, a heap of bikes on there, you know, um, and, have, you know, like, yeah, you, it may damage it, but if the trail's built well, you, we see no, we didn't have to change a damn thing. Also, one thing I want to tell you too back there is uh, all the trails that are built are usually, we design them for a 1,000 people a week. It's easy to build a trail for just you and your buddies, but... When you're building for you're know, building trails that last forever, they have to you know have a thousand riders on it a week. Very important. One thing I just remembered I should have said before. But there and then there's speed. Like uh, Nina Scherter and I went for a ride. I was on an e-bike and he was on his bike. I couldn't catch him. Mate, I tried. You know, he's gone. You know, and uh, you know it's uh, digital analog. It doesn't really matter if you're not riding. It doesn't matter. You know, I don't. I have heard that it's a big problem in like. 
bit of a conversation point over in the States. But, um, yeah. Even shuttles, sorry. You know, people say, oh, well, with e-bikes, you know, there's not going to be people shuttling or going up uh, chairlifts. Yes, there is. You know, still, you know, you might get, if you're going to do a gravity trial, you might do three runs riding up and down compared to, you know, 20 runs in a chairlift or a gondola. You still take your bike. Yeah, and I've often said that, you know, it doesn't take the bike to make a person an asshole. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you're gonna if you're gonna be an asshole and ride by people super fast and have an ego type of attitude, yeah. it's not the bike that's doing it. You could be an analog mm. bike or it could be an e-bike. I've never heard that before. Never heard that. That's I mean, that's kind of the way I've looked at it because people have been like, oh, now they're gonna go uphill too fast or Whatever the argument is, right? I mean, it's people like to, I think for whatever reason, people like to use fear as their tactic to argue, right? Yeah. And that's just another, I mean, like you said, 29ers, like, okay, then go ride your 26 inch wheels and have fun with that. Yeah. 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 Well, I couldn't even understand what that argument was about. You know, like, well, yeah, okay, 29, well, don't buy it. If you don't like it, don't buy it. You, like, am I forcing, you know, yeah, you know, a tray down, like, or, or you know, or a you know, heavy metal band down your throat saying, you've got to listen to this. No, just don't listen to it. I, I, don't, I choose not to listen to that. I choose not to ride, you know, an e-bike or I choose not to ride a 29 or a 26er. You know, that's got nothing to do with anything. <laughs> you just do whatever you do. Yeah, so that 29er one was really funny. Anyway, yeah, no problem here in Australia. And I know in Europe it's, it's not a problem, you know. Um, it's just part of life. And, uh, yeah. Well, and the whole 29 thing, like early on, admittedly, they didn't have the geometry, right? I mean, there was things that they had to figure out, right? And so yeah. somebody could have hated early 29ers because they didn't handle like they do, you know, the 29ers of 2023. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also, look, it, it's a, usually it's a start of the curve. People, the people that get involved with a type of something, mountain bike, could be anything. At the start, they could be early adopters, but sometimes... Some people with mountain bike, they could be a little kooky, you know, a little bit like that. And 29 is way back. I know when one of my mates just rode single speed and that was it. He kept saying 29 is it. And he was like a folk festival rider. You know, he was, uh, <laughs> you know, it was a bit, bit strange, you know, uh, greatest guy. Uh, but, uh, and you know, I think some people pigeonhole, they go, oh, that, that type of person rides a 29er. So I don't want to be that person, you know, and that was what 15 years ago or more, you know, so. And maybe it's the same what you said about the e-bikes. Maybe some people just get on bikes and, you know, um, I, I really like where, like what Specialized is doing with these SLs. You know, they, they the technology wasn't there, but wouldn't they have been great as the first ever mountain bike? E-bike, I mean, you know, there's just a little bit of battery and a little bit of engine and you can't notice, you don't notice anything. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you still got to pedal them and they're not easy, but they're a bloody lot of fun. I think bikes like that are the future where there's just a little, if we're talking e-bikes, you know, they're, um, they're really, really good where you actually still work. You have a workout. It's not free, you know? <laughs> no, it's not at all. Yeah. I want to back up what, a couple steps. You said you want to put a, you want to design a trail for, a, I think you said a thousand people a, a week or a day. I'm, I'm assuming a week. A week. Yeah. No, we do. We do. That's our protocol. Yeah. What? So what kind of things are you looking at to make sure that you have, and, and I'm talking, like we're going to get in the weeds on design considerations. Like what type of things do you look at? Do you want to make sure you, you have incorporated so you can stay durable? I'm going to say for that thousand riders a week. 
Yeah, look, uh, try and make it as natural as possible, you know, so it's a, a natural, you know, um, and uh, but it has to be sustainable um, because uh, some places you'll get a 1,000 people a week and it's raining, you know, and it's uh, durable, hardened surfaces, you know, simple things like, uh, all right, when you're, um, you know, when you rock armour, a crossing, a, a little a stream, right, you don't have to do it on the entry uh, while you're still on the soil. You don't have to rock armour that, but you actually have to rock armour the exit. Because what the the bike pulls water out, and if you've ever been to a, a a World Cup race where they're compacting the impact, where you're having X amount of people going around a track in 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 the you know in high you know just pounding, or even you know even a twenty four hour race or whatever with a thousand people in it, you know if there's one little thing going to go wrong, it's going to you know turn pretty ugly pretty quick, you know. So if you're pulling water out of the stream onto the soil, you know that's going to get you know. Tire ruts in it, it gets get ripped, roots are going to come out, and you know it's going to you know, turn into a big old bog hole. So what you do is you armor that, you harden sur- that surface for another five or six meters. Simple little things like that. Trajectory is really important. Um, you know, th- there's you know one little hint of abrasion for one rider, uh, you know, <coughs> bit of a skid into a corner or whatever like that. A thousand people, you're going to have whoops this big, you know, meter high whoops like a supercross track, you know. So, so you've got to, that, that's where, you know, when you're really, when you're designing trails, you know, uh, unfortunately, I still see it where people actually drop down before they turn into a corner. You must lift up. I do. I see it too. I've, I've seen it recently, actually. And it was kind of, kind of mind blowing. I can't believe it. I mean, we, we hadn't done that for 30 years, you know, where you, you to a couple of really good things about it is like, you're, you're managing your speed. We call them lifters, you know. So, you know, you just, you come in, you lift up, and then you drop down a, a corner. Well, you're washing your speed off to your speed, whatever you want. You can fan the brakes if you like here and there. But the thing is, you just, you're not, you're not braking at all, you know? And, uh, and if you are braking really badly, there's something to do with the design 50 meters before that, you know, how you've designed that, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, with a lifter, yeah, you just wash and, and, so, so if you've got a high abrasion, if there's a lot of abrasion going on, yeah, you know that's when when you have a thousand people a week, that that's going to magnify pretty badly, you know. Um, yeah, just on that, you know, just on that alone, uh, you know, we, we'll get called upon to have a look at something, and somebody said, "Look, there's a section of trail that we built a long time ago. We're having a lot of problems with, uh, you know, this section. There's there's a lot of breaking, and we're hardening. We're putting rocks in there. We're you know, we're 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 hardening, you know, rock armoring, we're doing as much as we can. And the first question is, have you looked at redesign? You know, you're coming in, you're coming in way too fast, you know. Uh if you flip it over there, come in there, and then then you'll be right. And then you won't have to do a single thing. Uh, you know, look, in the design, you know, line of sight is really important. You'll get people skidding and breaking bit just because they don't see around the corner. You may have a branch come down and all of a sudden go, well, what, hang on, what are we what's all this abrasion here? You know, just uh, but yeah, climb, rest, climb, CRC, we call it. Uh, it's not so much reverse grades, but if you're climbing the top of the hill, you climb for a while and then you give a bit back. You want to descend for a little while, then climb a little bit more. Then all of a sudden you'll get to the top of that hill, be 500 meters, 200 meters, whatever it is. And you go, holy shit, how did I get here? You know, because you rested all the way instead of having a horrible grind all the way up. You know, arc to arc is really important to control the speed and adjustable cans. And look, there, there's so many things in a trail for a thousand people a week, you just design it for that. You know, like I said, if you and your mate went out and built a trail, you just went out and cut a trail and it wasn't any, it had nothing to do with Imbo. You just went against the rules the whole way 
and you and it's still you know a year later it's still there. You go well, how how is that possible? That's still there. Well, you go well, I only wrote it, write it every three months. You and your mate, of course, it's going to stay there. It's not going to go anywhere, you know. But you have a thousand people a week. Well, that's different, you know. So with that, you know, you 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 got to look at you know how you design that trail. You know, you you don't you know if if the terrain you know if if you have sections that are really sandy or really uh, erosive, well, you don't put big you know, heap of gravity there, you go, well, look, we've got to back off a little bit here and let's let's put the climbing through this section and then let's put the gravity over near that, you know, near the rocky sections, the the soil that can handle it, you know, and, and a certain type of trail, you know. Yeah, there's all, look, in a trail, there's so many different things, you know, stall and fall, you know, you, geez, you know, there's, there's so many different protocols you've got to put in place for a trail to last and, um and and not expand out into the forest, and you know um, it's got to work. Uh, you're not alienating, you know, groups of riders, and yeah. I got one more design question, and that's it. Then, okay. What are your thoughts? And and this, and we're, and we're I'm not referring to gravity when I say this. What are your thoughts on directional trails? Because and what spurred my mind on that was the stream co- crossing that you just talked about with putting the rock armoring on the side that you come out of the stream on. Are you always designing directional stuff for a trail town or a trail center? Or, I mean, maybe there has to be some two directional stuff for, a, a, you know, if you only have one corridor for a connection, but what are your thoughts on directional trails? Uh, um, yeah, the all one <laughs> direction, always. Dual direction, if it's a link trail going from this pastoral trail to another, it's just a link trail, you know, um, because you remember back in the 90s when you get a photocopier, you know, you got a photocopy or, 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 or a, well, a fax, you know, or, you know, a machine, right? And then one day somebody came out with a, a fax, a, uh, a photocopy or a phone, a scanner, a printer, all in one. Well, they all did the job, but not all real good, you know, <laughs> unless you had that one that did that, you know. Uh, that's the way we look at it. We will not go anywhere near that. Won't even, even entertain it, you know, because the thing is you're designing a trail to last for a 1,000 people a week that are going, you know, even if it's not a thousand, but, you know, you, let's say that, but you're going in a direction. You want to build the best experience you can, and then you want to do it from the other side too? Ah, that ain't going to work, you know. I have these discussions with people more times than I care to count, and oh, it, really? it baffles me every time. And I've used the analogy of, like, what if you went on a golf course and started golfing at each other? That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly it. Well, that. There's no written word in Australia, but they're banned. You know, there's like nobody does that because it's just, you know, it's like, oh, well, we're going to build 20 kilometers of trail. That means we got 40. No, you've got 20 rubbish kilometers of trail. You know, they're not going to flow really well either way. Oh, I mean, they may. You've got to put a lot of work into them, you know, and uh, dual directional trails. Yeah, I don't know. They're, it's not for the experience. Uh, it's only for linkage and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I like that one. I'll, like, you didn't mind if I use that one? You can use it all you want. It doesn't come up at all in Australia. Nobody does it, you know, um, because, yeah, it just it doesn't work. Yeah. Because you're dealing, you're designing networks, you know, and you're designing, you know, stack loops or you're going from here to there and you're going over there, this and that, you know. How's that work coming back, you know? Um, and do you do a climbing trail or do you do a descending? You know, like one, with one's a climb, it's got to be a descent the other way. And so it just doesn't work. I'm glad Sorry. you said that. I'm really glad you said that. With that, do you have any, before we close this one out, do you have any, words of wisdom that you want to close with or people you want to thank for you. Obviously you've been doing this for many years so that we could probably do five hours on people you want to thank. 
you know what I mean? But you know, some stuff that, that sticks out to you and, or maybe drop us with a, a Glenn trail poem. <laughs> ah, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it? Uh, um, oh geez, I've forgotten it now that, that, that trail poem, like bend your backs and dig my lads and uh, we'll build a mighty trail. Tonight we'll sing and dance and tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow we shall rail. We'll ride into the mountains. No prouder men will be. Show them where we built a trail from the mountains to the sea. <laughs> that was part of an old, old trail thing. But no, look, uh, look, I, I just think it's a great industry. I think it's great. You know, it's, um, there's been so, so many amazing people, you know, um, like, you know, all, all the characters from, all, you know, from the mountain bike hall of fame, you know, the, those, those boys, that, you know, and, and girls that, and people being inducted in there. I think that's great. You know, um, if people like Hans Ray, I think, uh, you know, um, he's probably one of the, most iconic people in the world, I think, as a mountain biker. What he's done, people don't realize what he's done for mountain biking and connected people here and there and everything. And and there's there's you know there's there's, there's so many other people like that globally. You know, uh, yeah, Imba, Imba's done a great job. Look, I think it's just a beautiful industry. We have a long way to go, you know, um, because of the specifications and uh, you know, um, uh, look, one of the biggest terms I use is we we as a Smarter group, yeah, you know, like a, a, a trail builders, people who are building the trails and knowing exactly what we know the smarts of the trails, you know, the, the, the building side. We we need to verbalize our knowledge more, our, our specification, the kinetic trajectory, sustainability, that drainage and, and safety and stuff like that. Um, I, I think there needs to be specifications. And again, that does not, you know, pull everybody into a you say, oh, this is you have to build it a certain way. No, you can build anything you want as long as you have these specifications in place you know i think we need to get to there because you know the, the 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 better the trail the less maintenance there is you know and look we've all come from there we've all come from that volunteer area so we all had to start somewhere but those that dynamics has changed now you can actually go to trail builders and start you know your your career with a trail builder with a quality trail builder you know and and ptba does that you know and that that's that's um I think that's a great thing. We don't you don't actually have to do the, the discovery yourself, you know, you you you're there to learn, you know. And I but I think it's really important. We we find a lot with volunteers and 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 people they may be the nicest people in the world and they go out there and they do work all the time but they may not necessarily be great trail builders, you know. And then you get the opposite too, somebody that you know grumpy and you hardly can get a word out of them and they build amazing tracks and they love being by themselves somewhere. So the spectrum is fairly wide there, you know, but uh, look, uh, professional trail building is where it's at for 80,000 people a week, you know, uh, and and we're getting these these uh, trail centres and trail towns coming up more and more. And, uh, uh, mate, I'm, I'm coming over there. I'm looking forward to getting over there um, either later on this this year or a lot next year. So um, our paths will most likely cross. Hopefully. That'd be awesome. Maybe you'll have to come over for the next – I know there's going to be another – international trail summit where it's a ptba slash american trail summit just like we had in reno last week coming up in 2025 they're going to try to do those every other year and there's nearly a thousand people at that conference wow geez you know but that Isn't was also oh you know as you know like side by side users rails of trails horse you know horse users hikers it was the full gamut of all trail users not just mountain biking okay yeah yeah but education oh, yeah. was a huge one. I mean, there's education was being talked about every single day, all the time. And when I say education, I mean like how it's coming into universities and technical trade schools now. 
you know, as yeah. actually learning the profession, like you just talked about. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we've got a we got a manual that we use in house, and it's a fifty five page document. And now we did that about ten years ago. Now there's another two hundred pages added to, added to it. Now everybody goes through our in in house uh, call it. You know, it takes them like three years to spit out the other end. But uh, that's that's just in house. But in Australia, the, uh, there's been a lot of talk about that accreditation. Um, because you should be accredited if you're going to get a government job, you know, you, you, you know, you don't want to be building because it's no good for the industry. If you build something bad, it'll come back and bite you not instantly, but maybe two years time, it'll, it'll come back and bite. And that's no good for the industry. So look, I, that's where we're going. And then, and, and uh, that's just the way it is. You know, you got to build the right trail in the right place and the right terrain for the right riders, you know? And um, yeah. Well, Glenn, I really appreciate yeah. your time with this. You know, it's funny because so when your soil searching video came out, I told my girlfriend, I'm like, man, it would be incredible to have Glenn Jacobs on the podcast. And then oh. Tony Boone starts texting me. He's like, you got to get Glenn on. I'm like, okay, you have to connect me with Glenn. And then literally last, a week ago today, I'm sitting down with Mike Ryder and you may, may or may not remember Mike Ryder, but he was him and his, him and his wife at the time were the, the, the first people in a Subaru to start the Imba Trail Care crew in the nineties. And he yep. looks at me. This is at the conference. He's like, you got to get Glenn. And he couldn't think of your last name. And I go, Jacobs. He's like, yeah, you got to get him on. And I'm like, I honestly just scheduled that this morning for next week. Uh, they're all good people you speak of. All great people. So I really appreciate yeah. again, you, you taking time out of your day. I'm going to say day because it's day where you're at. It's, you know, we're, we're recording this literally in the future. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but anytime, eh? like, uh, uh, and I must apologize if I've talked too much or I cackle on a bit too much, but uh, there's uh, so much to talk about and uh, I'd love to do it again sometime. Awesome. Well, thank you, Glenn. And you enjoy the rest of your day because it's daylight and I'm going to go to bed. Okay, mate. <laughs> Catch you later, right? Thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be back with Gary Gleason of WTB Components. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out www.dojustsendit.com for Cooley Creative. Yes, that's right. www.dojustsendit.com will get you to the Cooley Creative website. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect Podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Trail One Components, and Worldwide Cyclery. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which helps keep this thing going. Use the code TRAILPOD for a 20% discount at both Kettle Mountain and Trail One. That's capital T-R-A-I-L, capital P-O-D, for a 20% discount at both Kettle Mountain and Trail One Components. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. Mm-hmm.